Hello, and welcome to Wooden Teeth, a podcast about health, politics, and policy. I'm your host, Jake Williams. This week on the podcast, we have some Canadian guests. I had a conversation with Edwin Ng of the University of Waterloo and Carlos Moutinet of the University of Toronto, who both examined the effect of female representation in government on population health. It turns out that having more women in government is good for all of us. It's also good to have more women on this podcast because after my conversation with Edwin and Carlos, I have a chat with Chelsea Stallings and Emma Hennessy from our team here at Healthier Colorado to get their thoughts on this research. Let's start now with my conversation with Edwin Ng and Carlos Musne. Welcome, Edwin and Carlos. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So why would two dudes want to study the effect of women in government on population health? How did this get started? Well, we had a research program on the relevance of politics as the determinant of health. Like people have studied how poverty, income inequality affect health. We were interested in the role of politics. And uh, we started uh, looking at uh, the type of government policies that uh, affect health, what we call uh, welfare state or welfare regime type policies, like uh, generosity of uh, uh, unemployment benefits and so on. And then we looked at uh, political traditions, like social democratic, liberal, and so on. So uh, our next step was uh, the role of gender. Uh, Gender has a a notion also of equity in the distribution of uh, women in uh, in politics, their presence in politics, and we wanted to know if that made a difference. And uh, representation of women in uh, Canadian government has been on the increase, is that correct? There is a trend historically to increase the representation of women. Now, it may be that uh, Canada is not among the countries uh, that uh, in which this has been more uh, intense. Among the rich countries, for example, Spain has a much larger representation of women in government. So I can add something to that. Uh, so when we're talking about Canada, we're looking at Canadian provinces, uh, which is probably is the, which is the equivalent of states um, in the in the U.S. So between 1976 and 2009, there has been a, a six-fold increase in the percentage of women in provincial government, from four percent to close to twenty-six percent. That's significant, and uh, that trend is seen um, throughout OECD countries. Is that correct? Yes, I, I, yes, I would say so. Uh, so. Some countries are doing better than others, um, and our our primary, our we looked at Canada in this case, but there is an upward trend of more women entering politics at all levels of government. And so, what were your findings with respect to how female representation affects policies that influence population health? So. Um, so yeah, so, so so the question is, do women matter? Um, and so one step before this, we 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 conducted a study in 2015, and we found that very specific types of government spending matters at the provincial level. Um, in fact, we found four different factors. So they are medical care, uh, spending on preventative care, 
spending on post-secondary education, and spending on social services. So we know that these are the spending um, expenditures that help reduce mortality. Why do some provinces spend more on these factors than others? And so we, we theorize that perhaps women in government may trigger these types of spending. Uh, so what we did is that we conducted something called the time series cross-sectional study. Uh, we looked at all 10 Canadian provinces over 34 years. Um, we conducted uh, a regression analysis that also controls for other alternative explanations. And we found three, uh, our, our main findings are threefold. So we found that in provinces where women have been historically stronger, um, lower mortality rates have been observed, and women uh, seems to affect health by triggering these types of spending, the medical care, preventative care, uh, spending on universities and colleges and social services. Um, and one of the, perhaps the, the, the unexpected interesting finding that we found was that the political party orientation of the women did not confound the relationship. So women from all political orientations, um, from left parties, center parties, and right-wing parties, they were predictive of lower mortality rates. Wow. So this isn't simply the case that um, because perhaps uh, women might be further to the left, they um, in turn are more likely to support um, additional spending for uh, programs and resources that would support health. You actually found this across across parties. What 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 is it about women that predisposes them to make decisions in this way? Well, women's political attitudes are more to the left than men's, and that could happen even within conservative parties. And the range of parties in government is not that that wide. We don't have a lot of say. Uh, extreme left, or even extreme right until recently. Just a a comment on your statement. Yeah, definitely. I think like the heart of it is that what makes uh, female politicians different from their male counterparts? Um, And so there was a quote from Debbie Walsh, who's the director of Center for American Women in Politics. uh, And their quote was, our shorthand for that is that women run to do something and men run to be somebody. So that is a, like a broad generalization, but we believe that our work and the work of others has shown that uh, there are gender differences when it comes to policy preferences. So men and women carry, um, they advocate, they care about different issues, um, and they tend to work differently too. So women prefer more of a democratic uh, leadership style versus um, autocratic ways amongst uh, male politicians. Let's talk more about leadership style. I I know you um, examined the voting behavior of women versus men, but when it comes to leadership style, how significant are the differences and how do the differing leadership styles manifest themselves in terms of the policy that's produced? That's a good question. That that hasn't um, been the primary focus of our work, but we've looked to uh, actually work in the states that has found that women in government they tend to went, they tend to work in more uh, collaborative and bipartisan ways. 
Um, and they also are much more effective at building coalitions and, and reaching consensus. Uh, so that's what we know from, from the literature. And we believe that's translated into uh, different spending priorities um, and, and uh, population health outcomes. In other circumstances, it's been found that women uh, conduct uh, more coalition-type politics. They build bridges uh, across uh, organizations. And also from a more psychological perspective, they have higher emotional intelligence, which means that they are more able to see the interest of others and taking them into account when they conduct uh, negotiations or uh, governance. And, and Jake, if I can add something here, um, we, we don't believe that what's working, at, what, what's going on is biology. Uh, we believe that it, this is something um, called the politics of presence. So different uh, preferences uh, for issues, different leadership styles, uh, different attitudes, they reflect more uh, they reflect more about the lived experiences of women than it does anything about anything about genetics or biology. The, the, the idea is that um, by being mothers and, and women in a the workforce, they and, and, and um, the caring for children uh, falls disproportionately on women that they have they carry these issues into the political arena when they enter politics. Um, so that's that's the, that's a key idea that we want to stress here. Interesting. Um, well, so that <laughs> it, that that would perhaps give um, men some hope that they're uh, not predestined upon birth to be inferior leaders, which um, would be disappointing for you know men like me. Um, but now that you've said that, I guess th there would be an argument for the continued erosion of the rigid gender roles that uh, tend to dominate. Uh, society um, here in the U.S. and I assume to a, a roughly equal extent in Canada in terms of the responsibilities that men and women um, have when it comes to things like raising a family. You know, for example, I, I have two kids and a wife and, um, you know, there are, are patterns in the household that uh, sometimes uh, hue to traditional norms in, in terms of uh, our respective roles, you know, preparing food, taking care of stuff at school. And sometimes it doesn't, I can tell you it's way different than, um, you know, how I was raised in terms of uh, there's more fluidity uh, between those roles. So do you think that uh, there is a chance for, as society progresses in terms of making men and women more equal um, on a a wider basis that we could see um, improvement in the ability of men, consequently, to be better leaders as politicians? Well, men can learn definitely from women, whether they want to or whether it's happening is a different story. As you can see from uh, your own country, uh, the leadership is all but... Uh, uh, gender equity oriented uh, and uh, well there are different trends right uh, growth of women in the congress uh, would tend to uh, favor what we've been observing elsewhere and what we are uh, noticing 
So there are different uh, political developments that uh, seem to push in different directions at this point, and the future is a little bit uh, up in the air. Uh, as you can see in Europe, like in the US, there is also, in many countries, a return to patriarchal attitudes and to uh, even uh, move back from some of the gains that women experience uh, in the last uh, quarter of a century, uh, of the 20th century, and, and in this one. So um, it's hard to make uh, sociological predictions as to whether men can... Uh, Evolve definitely. It's something that I believe the feminist movement and the Me Too contemporarily uh, accept and recognize that uh, change uh, in women's position uh, is uh, goes hands in hands with a change in the way men behave, including politics. Uh, do you see a connection between um, patriarchal attitudes? and uh, right-wing nationalism? Yes, uh, I would say in some European countries, it's very closely associated. Uh, the right of uh, Vox in Spain, uh, the parties that have been uh, funded uh, by Steve Bannon, for example, they have this characteristic. Uh, also, uh, Eastern country, uh, Southern European. I'm not so sure the right-wing parties of Scandinavia. I think that those are less patriarchal than the new right in uh, Southern Europe, Eastern Europe. So that's an interesting question from a research perspective because you would look at do uh, countries with more uh, patriarchal leaders, um, how does their the health of their nation fare against countries with more feminist presence? Um, and so that's that's one of the motivations um, as, as a part of our work and looking at different political parties also uh, attempts to answer that question. I was struck by your earlier statement about how um, men run for office to be somebody and women run for office to get something done. And uh, just the other day, I saw an article in the New York Times about Italian politics and uh, the rise of the right wing there and how their rhetoric um, tends to indict those who um, are li are trying to do good, um, do-gooderism is uh, has been labeled, um, you know, naive and suspicious, and it that that attitude would seem to comport with the respective generals uh, uh, when it comes to one gender, females wanting to get something done, um, which you know. Uh, would be regarded perhaps as with suspicion or derision um, uh, under the attitudes I described in Italy um, versus men who are all about power and 
um, would perhaps uh, treat anything beyond immediate self-interest or tribalism as uh, a ridiculous suspect or something to be uh, put down. Well, how, what do you think about that line of thinking? Well, uh, in Italy, Salvini, in the, uh, Spain, Vox, uh, Le Pen in France, uh, um, Orban in Hungary, they may have different expressions of their uh, culture, some closer to fascism, others maybe less. Patriarchy being a, a one that's quite common and in Southern Europe, uh, where we had experiences of fascism for uh, long periods of the 20th century. In some places like uh, Spain, uh, up to the late 70s. So in, in this uh, background, uh, we find still a stronger uh, experience of uh, patriarchy. And uh, goodism is, I would say, more of a strategy of the broad right-wing spectrum, not necessarily these uh, patriarchal extremes, in which uh, what is a, a policy, let's say uh, a strong welfare state, is psychologized and made like a, a, an individual attitude uh, towards uh, uh, of a naive personalities, right? It's a way of uh, degrading a policy option by making it an individual attribute that uh, is considered weak, unexperienced, or uh, naive. I don't know if that uh, makes sense. It does. So is there any argument for men at all when it comes to, uh, not that I'm searching for one because I'm quite predisposed to where you're coming from here, but is there in your research that you find that there's any, you know, on average uh, uh, benefit or uh, to male leadership versus female leadership when it comes to population health? We haven't looked at that, and it's very important to um, to note that there have been male politicians that have um, that hold leftist attitudes, uh, that have advocated for social democracy, uh, pay equity, uh, gender equity. So there have been advances, um, but we, we because we we're focused on the political arena, we see we, we try to focus on which collective actors are in power. And so, or at least trying to get into power and how that affects the status quo. Um, and we believe that's where the change will happen in terms of improving a nation's health or uh, reducing the gap between those who are the healthiest and those who are uh, uh, the unhealthiest. Um, if I can go back to the do-gooderism part, like we, I, I like the point that um, uh, Carlos made about it being uh, individualized. But if we if do gooderism means uh, investing in healthcare, uh, if it means investing in public health, um, increasing or, or, or strengthening our access to post-secondary education, or ensuring that uh, social services are available, then that's from our perspective more of that do gooderism is needed without um, the the derision that you mentioned. And what other uh, topics? Uh, within this realm of uh, representation in, in government, 
uh, between the two genders and its effect on population health uh, might you be interested in? What might be the next frontier of your research? Oh, we, we just spoke about this before uh, we talked. Uh, we were thinking about replicating um, the study in different contexts. So the states, the U.S. would be an interesting context because there's uh, 51 states. The uh, Accessing the data would, um, wouldn't be as hard. The sample size would be bigger. So the, the idea would be that we found this finding amongst Canadian provinces. Can it be extended to other liberal nations like the U.S. or the U.K.? Um, the challenge is finding countries with uh, sub-national jurisdictions that have the autonomy to affect social policy um, and thus public health. Carlos, do, uh, do, do we any other ideas, Carlos, for the next steps? Well, I, I, uh, I agree with you. Now there might be uh, some comparable economically in terms of development comparable European countries uh, with uh, different uh, political traditions if that holds or if there are uh, differences say in Scandinavia that would be another suggestion excellent so um, you know the US and Canada are are similar in, in many ways but we're also different in some fundamental ways when it comes to uh, governments, politics, and policy. And one of those differences, of course, is our our, our respective healthcare systems. Um, you have um, universal coverage up there in Canada. We have uh, something less than that uh, down here. And perhaps as a result, um, in part, our political dialogue when it comes to health is all about healthcare. And healthcare is important, don't get me wrong, but of course research shows that um, other factors, um, other social, economic, and public health factors can play an even greater role in ensuring that you're um, healthy and can live a certain length of, of life. I wonder what are the politics like up there um, with respect to health? Do they center on healthcare? Do they uh, go beyond uh, healthcare? Is there a broader recognition um, about the role of uh, social, economic, and public health policy um, and how it affects the quality and length of life or not? I would say the way that um, uh, the U.S. Canadians uh, speak about health is, is more alike than, than different. We still uh, think of health as an individual phenomenon. Uh, we're responsible for it. We need to eat better, uh, stop smoking, and we need to uh, start exercising more. Um, there's not nearly enough acknowledgement of how social conditions like income, education, and occupation affects health. And there's next to a little discussion about how politics um, are actually the drivers of, of those social determinants of health. Carlos, what do you think? I, I agree with you uh, completely. It's uh, both are what we call liberal countries with... Uh, a common history. They are uh, U.S. and Canada were ex-British colonies. They share uh, a lot in common. Um, the attitudes of the population. I'm not even sure that regarding healthcare, they are that different at this moment. Even if in the U.S. Uh, these uh, attitudes that would support a national health plan uh, would be. Uh, 
realized in terms of uh, what uh, uh, their government is able to to do. So in all ways, I think uh, there. When we compare them, we see a huge uh, difference. But when we look at the context of U.S. and Canada globally, they are more alike than what we usually think of. And are are there a particular set of policies or an individual policy that uh, is particularly needed up in Canada to advance population health that is missing now? Is either in your opinion or the opinion of others, is there um, a a gap in policy that needs to be filled? I'll I'll let Carlos take the first one and then I'll I'll see if we're we're, we're thinking the same thing. In the U.S., I think... uh, um, Medicare for all is the next step. I think uh, the House has passed uh, uh, pieces that uh, could be the law of the land, uh, uh, the last I think by uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, there is, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, wide support in the population for such an expansion of uh, Medicare, which is the most uh, popular uh, government program. So uh, I would say that uh, with the new uh, Green uh, Deal, uh, this might be the the most important next steps that uh, US policy can take. I I was actually asking about Canadian policy. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, Canadian policy, I think it's pharmacare. This is what makes our system relatively, places it relatively down in the ranking of uh, global healthcare systems. We're still paying for, uh, we don't have a program that uh, reduces the cost of our uh, uh, drugs. Uh, so, I think uh, that there is a growing consensus that this should be the new uh, policy innovation uh, for Canada. It should be noted that Canada is the only uh, uh, wealthy nation with a universal health care coverage without um, a universal drug plan. So uh, that would have an immediate effect on, on disposable income in a household, which then affects health. And did you have additional thoughts on um, policy that needs to be pursued in Canada? I think, um, you know, b- beyond the, the ones that we know, right? So we know that poverty, reducing poverty, reducing income inequality, um, uh, increasing supportive housing. So for us, it's really less of a policy issue uh, of finding the, the perfect policy that's going to solve um, the nation's health. Uh, it's more about the politics of the issue. So who is in the position of power uh, will determine which policies are then placed uh, in effect. And so that's why I think in part we focus so much on, on politics, which we acknowledge is, is much, much messier um, than looking at a, at, a, at a policy, the effects of a policy on health. Uh, we're looking at power. We're looking at social conflict. We're looking at, at different actors trying to compete for, for, for social resources. So it's not that the policy prescriptions are a mystery per se. It's more about the need for political will to get the the known tools put in place so that health can be improved. Yes, I would say so. It's uh, uh, 
policy follows politics. Yeah, I think that's a principle that's uh, applicable to both the U.S. and Canada. Uh, Edwin Ng and Carlos Moutinet, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you for having us, Jake. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Edwin and Carlos. I thought it'd be useful to bring in a couple members of the Wooden Teeth team to talk more about the interview and certainly to offer a female perspective. So I'm gonna let you two introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Chelsea. I'm the communications manager for Healthier Colorado and help on the Wooden Teeth podcast. And I'm Emma Hennessy and I'm the digital strategy manager. So. Let's just start general impressions. Did you learn anything? Did you did it uh, cause you to have more questions? What, what do you think? Um, I, I guess I was reaffirmed um, by women's leadership tendencies of um, being more inclusive and supportive um, toward social welfare reforms, education. I felt like that was something I could make the assumption by. So it was great to learn that that's actually happening um, when women are in power. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's something I think about a lot and I may love to learn more about, especially some more of the political science and data perspective behind beliefs I already hold. Um, but something I'd love to talk more about in addition to that conversation is the fact that I think a lot of times that our male leaders don't like to push as many progressive policies that disrupt our political system is because they live in a system which they benefit more than women. It's easier to affirm the status quo when you live in a world that's easier for you. And I think that's a really important part of it too, is that since women have live in a system they don't actively benefit as much from, they're more willing to be disruptors and innovators and push for things that help people who are less privileged. So you're kind of adding a layer to this notion that a woman's lived experience influences her policy priorities and perhaps leadership style, not just because she uh, perhaps has uh, been the primary person in the household raising kids, but that she makes systemic recognitions about power that inform how she votes and how she leads. Exactly. I think a lot of it's structural. You live in a world where you're less powerful than someone else, you're more likely to advocate for others who would feel the same way. And what did you guys think about this notion that uh, feminism is effectively uh, good for your health. As in, you know, I think that uh, thinking from a, a male perspective here, when I've encountered other males, uh, I've certainly heard reactions to feminism from men um, be along the lines of, oh, I must lose something if feminism uh, is a, a part of our reality uh, rather than gain something or um, have it be neutral. And I was intrigued by their contention that feminism um, not only makes a better society, but makes better men, and those men could go on to be better leaders and as leaders create a better society. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think that um, feminism is good for everybody. It's about raising all of us to be a better person um, and living in a better, more just world. Um, I think that men are kind of raised to be more direct, um, 
they are meant raised to be aggressive. Whereas women, society tells us, you know, be nice, play nice, be a good listener, be caring. Um, and those are really great qualities that we can all benefit from. When we look at our current political system, it's a lot of people talking um, just at people, no true listening, um, and not really like getting to the core of issues. Whereas I think if more women were involved in the discussion, um, we could listen more. Um, but also if the men that are in power took the traits that women tend to have more of, um, we could just get more done again, like listening, caring, being empathetic, those sorts of things. Yeah. And to add to that, I think a lot of that comes from the fact since we live in a patriarchal world, our culture is kind of embedded with a lot of masculinity. I'm not saying just men and women, just masculine values and traits. So that's women see that like we have women have a feminine perspective and they also have a masculine perspective, which they see from just living in our culture. So when you have men, they live in a world that's full of masculinity. So adding a feminine perspective is just adding, it's expanding your worldview. And it's something I think a lot of women already have because we live in a world that's dominated by male thought. So it's just adding another perspective to ways to think and solve problems. And how about uh, future research? I asked them a bit about you know what they'd like to do next. And this original study again was uh, on the Canadian provinces. And I was interested in what more we can learn um, by looking into different uh, leadership styles and voting patterns uh, according to different demographics. Did you have any particular interests or questions along those lines? Yeah, I think that it would be really interesting to do a deeper dive into race um, and women in politics, uh, especially when you look at the 2016 election, um, 90 some percent of black women voted for Hillary Clinton versus 50 some percent voted of white women voted for Hillary Clinton. So I think when we're looking at about passing um, more like do good policy. Um, I'd be curious what types of women are really advocating um, for that. Yeah, it kind of aligns with with your perspective, Emma, um, on you know the role of lived experience in, in influencing how women vote and lead is not just about um, you know, their, their role on a ground level in a household, for example, but their recognition of systemic oppression even. And um, it would seem, the, I'd say the prima facie evidence is that the same thing could perhaps apply to race as well. Yeah, and I think I've always been interested in the idea that someone being a homemaker or being a mother like changes their perspective as a politician. It's something I'd love to learn more about, and I think it definitely influences you because your life experiences always do. But I would not, I'm hesitant to, hesitant to think that's the only reason that governs women's political ideology, because I think we're more complex than that, we're more multifaceted, and even more, a lot of women choose not to have children and haven't yet. And I'd hate to make all of their ideology go down to the fact that they're homemakers and in that sphere, which I think we hear a lot about in the news. Um, and I think it's a lot more complex than that, which they alluded to. All right. Well, this is fun. We should do this more, don't you think? Yes, for sure. Okay. All right. Thanks again. Okay. That ends our party on the podcast this week with uh, four guests and two conversations. Hope you enjoyed it. Please give us feedback anytime, either via our website, woodenteethshow.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, please rate us while you're at it. And subscribe if you haven't already so you can find out what we're up to each and every week. I'll see you later.